So we're reading today from John chapter 13. We've been going through the gospel of John. If you want a journal, Sharon, do we have any more journals? We can get you a journal. So just put your hand up and we'll bring one to you. You can journey through it in your own time. This week, you're going to be going through John chapter 13 and 14, but it doesn't matter where you are up to. We can go through this passage today together. John 13 verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me, with me. Verse 9, then the Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Dunk me, Peter says. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. Can we pray together? Dear Lord, I thank you that the church has never been a building, Lord. It's always been about a people. And so, Lord, in this moment, as we unite together as a people gathered in this building, but those watching online, Lord, in spirit, I pray that as we explore your word this morning, your incredible act of humility and sacrifice, Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I love the way that this chapter begins kind of setting the scene. It was the night before the Passover. I picture that line that we the night before Christmas. Both center around Jesus, but both with very different meanings and moments. John writes his gospel, the hour has come. And if you've been reading along with us, then you know the tension that's been building up until this point. There's moments where John's written that Jesus' hour had not yet come. Or he escaped through the crowd and away from the people trying to hurt him because his hour had not yet come. And yet here in John chapter 13, we read that the hour is here. The time has come. It's almost like that feeling on Thursday. The restrictions will be lifted. The hour is here. We'll be returning to a single 10 a.m. service on Sunday. I said to the 9 a.m. guys that this was uh, all a big strategy these last three weeks of double services to work out who rocks up on time and then to work out who all of you are that come to the 11 a.m. service. I don't need to challenge the Niners. They're just going to get here the same time and they'll be all right. But you guys, well, I don't want to be too harsh. The hour has come and with it, it wasn't a celebration like on Thursday. It was a somber moment for Jesus knew he was walking towards the cross. And in this moment, John kind of shifts in, in his gospel from Jesus' work to the city and to the people and then to his 
own. And it's captured in verse 1 saying, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And look what love would do. Look how love would stoop down on his knees, unstrap the sandals of his followers, and then begin to wash their feet. You have to understand that this is, it's more than just a gross act for those of us who have a feet phobia or have experienced athlete's foot. It's more than just a gross act. This was meant to, to lower him. It was meant to degrade him because only slaves would do this. In fact, a lot of scholars argue that not even Jewish slaves would wash the feet, that it would only be the foreign slaves. And so you could picture them all in that room going, what is going on here? This is wild. We read it through the lens of a story, and sometimes we can get caught up picturing it like a movie, but this is real life. And if you were there in that moment, you would have been going, like the man last week waving the palm branch, what is Jesus doing? And he responds in verse 7, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. See, we live in later. We have the hindsight of the cross, you and I. We live beyond this side of history. And so we get to look back at Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb, and his ascension back into heaven and know that this is more than just washing feet. We can appreciate what really Jesus is doing in this moment. He's performing not just a simple act of cleaning, but a symbolic gesture, a foreshadowing, a picture of his death on the cross, of his cleaning sacrifice at Calvary. And we're actually going to go on a bit of a discovery journey this morning to uncover what Jesus was doing in John chapter 13. And I think the first thing that we uncover uh, is kind of different to the rest. I've called it the sinister plot. We uncover the sinister plot between Judas and the enemy. But with it, we also uncover the greatest story of God's sovereignty. You see, Judas was one of the 12. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. And I, I sometimes read this passage and just think, how much control did Judas really have? How much choice did he have? And it's this big philosophical question, if you listen, read about it or, or think about it for too long, that'll just leave you feeling dizzy. Was Judas a pawn in this plan? Because we must remember, like I said before, we're not reading a story, we're reading history. Judas is not just playing a villain in some sort of theater. He is a real-life person that ultimately came to real-life consequences because of his actions. But that's the question. Were they his actions? Because at the very same time that we're met with Judas, we're met with the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means supreme power or authority. What it really means in this context, though, is the ability to make what you will to happen, in fact, happen. Uh, the power for what you will to happen, what you desire to happen, to in fact happen. This is sovereignty. And this is the key. Because it was not Jesus' will that Judas would betray him. 
It was Jesus' will, we know, to redeem his people. And the only way that he was going to redeem his people was if he was handed over by his people to die. But for Judas to be that tool was not Jesus' will. But because of the all-knowing nature of God, he knew exactly what Judas would do. And then we're kind of left going, well, then where is the truth in all this? Which one is right? It sounds like a contradiction. And yes, it does sound like one, but the better word to use is paradox. Two phrases that seemingly contradict, but both are true. Because of the sovereignty, the power uh, to make what you will to happen, to in fact happen, we can know that if Judas was not to betray him, if he was to repent and, and turn from his sin, then ultimately Jesus would still eventually be handed over to die. Remember I said dizzy? I think of it like this. Judas has a choice. Jesus knows which choice he's going to make. If Judas doesn't make the choice, Jesus is still betrayed. And it's this crazy kind of paradox that we're presented with, and we're presented with many more throughout Scripture. Is Judas just a puppet in the devil's play? But the question that we really need to ask as we approach this scripture that can be so confusing is how did Jesus, Judas get the leading role in the devil's play? This is the real question. Because John doesn't say that Judas was just uh, helpless in all of this. He says that the devil in verse 2 came and prompted him, not propelled. Prompted, not propelled. Maybe it was his disenchantment with Jesus or his thwarted ambition, his hunger for glory, his insatiable greed. We don't know what it was, but something in his life gave the devil a foothold, an opportunity. But rather than uncover the mysteries of God, I want to tell you this morning, you should trust him and then be challenged to ask the question, what opportunity have we given the enemy to puppet master us in his play? This scripture's a warning. Even some of us who are outwardly washed by Jesus remain unwashed in heart. You see, it isn't about what you do. It's about who has your heart. Having closed his heart to the light, he found himself a servant of the darkness. We uncover the sinister plot of Judas and the enemy and the greater story of God's sovereignty, but we must also uncover our desperate need for his light in our life. His light in our life. Turn to the person next to you or the seat next to you for some of you and say, it's all about the heart. It's classic Peter who to all of this would say, no, you should never wash my feet. Look at verse 8. He says, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, wash all of me, basically. And in verse 10, he says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. I read this throughout the week and I was like, is Jesus giving us a lesson in COVID safe practices here? No. Remember, Jesus is painting a picture of what is to come. He's setting up the stage for what's to come at the cross. And what picture is Jesus painting here? What do we uncover? We uncover the only path to salvation. 
the only path to salvation is through the blood of Jesus. You're going to read next or this week, in fact, chapter 14, in one of Jesus' most famous statements, when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, no one gets to the Father except through me. Peter, he was refusing this because it wasn't meant to be this way. It wasn't meant to be this way that the Messiah, the Savior King, would kneel before Peter and wash his feet. The roles were meant to be reversed. And that's just it. The work, the power, the strength, the glory of the cross is all Christ and none of our own. Our role, as weird as it may seem, as odd as it may seem, is to receive. Is to receive. We say this in church all the time, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not behave and be saved. It is believe and receive. You can't get the gift from anyone else. I was saying in the morning service that it reminds me of my, my little gold car that my nana gifted me. It's a beauty, the gold nugget, I call it. And it came in, in mint condition, except for the fact that all of the lights didn't work. I discovered the first night that she gave it to me, I was all excited to be out in the beast and uh, I was driving and then I drove down the street and I went, it's pitch black, lights, lights, internal lights, nothing. Called Nana, what have you been doing? I never drive at night, doll. <laughs> Classic Nana statement. You know what also happened is uh, early in the first couple of weeks, she, I must be a little bit stronger than Nana, only a little bit. As I reached for the front door, I snapped the door handle off. You can see it out in the car park missing its door handle. It's so painful because every time I come to that car, I go, oh, I mean, I've simply got to open up the back seat, reach through and open the door. But it is so frustrating. Do you know what I mean? When something is meant to work in a certain way, but it doesn't, I think it's that part of, of humanity in all of us that just wants it to work quickly. I just want to get to where I need to go. I, I don't want to mess around with all of this stuff. Just get me into the car. And whilst the car has many other doors, I thought of something else this week. Many of you know that I had surgery on my shoulder about five or so weeks ago. And it's the fifth time, in fact, that I've had this surgery. And every time, every time, they give me these physio exercises that I'm to do. It's ridiculous. This tiny list of, well, actually, big list of tiny things like turn your hand around ten times. And go back the other way. And I have my wife hassling me to do this. Uh, every physio in the church hassling me to do this. Pretty much every, have you done your physio exercises? Yes, I'm working on it, but they're so annoying. I hope next week I'm getting to the point where I can draw the alphabet with my hand. Big stuff. Exciting things. You know, it's much like salvation, in fact. Because the only way that my shoulder is going to be saved is if I go through these exercises, and just like salvation, the only path towards salvation, the only way. I can't rest my shoulder and hope it'll be better. It needs to be strengthened. The only way to salvation is through the blood of Jesus, but different to my shoulder. There isn't the list of exercises you need to do each day. There was one and final act in history, once for all, Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. The only path to salvation is through the blood of Jesus. And it's a sobering thought. 
but it's the truth. And perhaps just as a sobering a thought is the next thing that we uncover, we uncover the inescapable challenge. Now, you guys are all going to roar with excitement because the 9 a.m. suddenly dipped in this moment. The inescapable challenge to what? The inescapable challenge to go and do the same. John 13, 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's no escaping verse 14. You should also wash one another's feet. There's no escaping verse 15. You should do as I have done for you. There's no escaping verse 17. You will be blessed if you do them. There's no way out. It's an inescapable challenge of Jesus to go and do the same. And I love that throughout this scripture, Jesus describes himself as both Lord and teacher. Lord means that he is the supreme authority over our lives. Teacher means that he is the supreme authority over our minds. You know that Jesus is Lord in your life according to your willingness to allow him to be your teacher. It's submission of our minds to his truth. It's submission to his standard, his truth, his attitudes, his values, his examples, so that they would rule our thoughts and determine our convictions. Are we meant to be literally washing each other's feet like the Seventh-day Adventists? Well, only if they're smelly. To feet washing, I think no. To the essence of what Jesus was really commanding us to do, to this self-sacrificing, incredible, unconditional love, ultimate humility, yes, you betcha. One theologian said of this passage, in a world desperately searching for the secret of community, this passage speaks most powerfully. It is those who have been humbled at the cross and come to Christ as helpless sinners seeking his cleansing who are the very raw material of the community of humble servants. The cross is both the way to salvation and the key to community. And it's all about humility. In this small story of Jesus washing his followers' feet, the Savior King washing his followers' feet, we uncover this sinister plot and the sovereignty of God, but more than that, our desperate need for his light in our life. We uncover the only path to salvation is through the blood of Jesus. We uncover the inescapable, inescapable challenge to go and do the same, but greatest of all, we uncover the triumph of love. The triumph of love. You see, this moment was not just a farewell to his followers. It wasn't a going away party with his friends. This is the commanding officer 
that speaking to his troops on the eve of the most dangerous mission that he was going to lead them into. This is the coach, if you love footy, in the third quarter, giving the rev up to the boys as they run out onto the field to bring the game home and the very method that they're going to do it. The very way that they get the ball to the end, the very way that they win the wall, the weapon that they will use is love. A God kind of love. Verse 33 says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command. Remember, he is Lord and teacher. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, love always triumphs. Love always triumphs. In the end, there is no explanation for the cross, for Jesus' death on the cross, than the love of God. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we can talk about love all day. But the real question I think that we've asked in church before that brings it all to a sobering reality, like what am I meant to do here? What am I meant to do in this relationship, in this circumstance? What does love look like there? The question you need to ask is what does love require of me? What does love require of me? It instantly humbles you. It instantly brings you, I think, to the feet of that person because love would require you to serve. Love that would require you to be generous. Love would require you to humble yourself like Jesus did for us. But the reality is we love imperfectly, especially apart from God. If we're going to be able to carry this mission, to carry this kind of love, we must first understand where it is coming from where we are coming from. And I love this bit because more than that question about Judas and was it his choice or not, and people write many books on the topic, is the question that I ask myself as I read this story, I wonder how Jesus found the energy to do all this, to cop all of the abuse that he did, to have every moment that he attempted to rest interrupted by another man or a woman worthy as they may have been but needy. How did he have the strength to walk towards his own death? And how in that moment did he humble himself? At the feet of his followers, some who would reject him. Some who would deny him. Many who didn't understand what he was doing. How did he love so unconditionally? And to know this, I think we need to look back at verse 3. See, I think verse 3 of chapter 13 is where all of the power lied for Jesus, and I think it lies there for you and I today. It says that Jesus knew. Everyone say Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his out of clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist and went on to serve his followers in what was such a degrading way in that time. He turned a symbol of degradation 
into a symbol of victory, just like he did on the cross. And this same strength, this same power is available to you. We all want to be the loving person, don't we? I don't think actually we need so much the motivation to love. We want to be lovable. We, no one wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm going to be the worst person ever today. No, we, we sing songs about love. Where is the love? I'm not going to sing that. What we need more than the motivation to love is the energy and the strength to persist even when we've been hurt. To persist in our love even when we've been rejected. Even when they don't deserve it. Even when you are tired or feel like it isn't making a difference. How do I get that kind of love? That kind of strength? That kind of endurance? Jesus says that it's by our love for one another that the world will know that we have been sent by him. And it comes when you know that the Father has put all things under his power. Fear leaves when you know that he has put all things under his power. Strength comes when you know that he has put all things under his power. COVID, the future, the governments, all things under his power. And not only that, it's, it's where you come from. See, Jesus, he knew where he came from, from the Father. And you've got to know this morning that you are uniquely designed, created by the Father. You are a child of God. And not just where you're coming from, where you are going. And Scripture says that we can have confidence in our salvation because of our faith in Jesus, because of the gift that we receive. How do we have the power as the band come up and and close off? How do we have the power to, to overcome offense? How do we have the power to overcome unforgiveness? How do we have the power to, to love that person that is just seems unlovable? The person who's never said thanks in all the years that you've opened the door for them, that you've sacrificed for them, the child or the, the work colleague, the strength, the power for love to truly triumph in your life, for love to be unlocked in your life comes from when you know that the Father has put all things under his control. You know where you are coming from and you know where you are going. How do we put this into action? How do we live this out in our lives this week? Well, I love a good prayer point. So I want to give you this phrase or this prayer I want you to write it down right now. Take a photo. We're going to leave it up on the screen. It reads like this. Every morning this week, wake up, declare this over your life. Jesus, I know all things are under your power. I know where I come from and where I am going. So send me in love today. Amen. Watch love triumph through your life. When it feels hard, when it feels like it isn't worth it, remember where you come from. Remember your salvation is secure. And remember that the Father has put all things under his control.
What do you need to surrender to him? How can you live this out in your life? Remember, the the charge is not towards washing each other's feet this week. The charge is towards self-sacrificing, ultimate, unconditional humility and love, just as Jesus has done for us. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to worship with this final song, but to those watching online and anyone here, I want to give an opportunity to invite Jesus into your heart. Maybe it's the first time that you've come to church or heard about him. Maybe you've heard about him before, but you thought it was all about what you do. Let me tell you, the message of the Bible is about faith in Jesus and receiving the free gift of his grace, his salvation, and then his spirit dwelling on the inside of you that transforms you from the inside out. So we're going to pray together as a church and repeat these words. And if you're watching online, we just ask that you put your hand over your heart as a symbol. We're going to pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my heart to be my Lord and to be my teacher. I believe that you died and rose again for me. Send me in love. Forgive me of my sin and lead me into everlasting life with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.